Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Welcome to the Yale University Press Podcast. I'm Michael Hoke. Today we're talking about evolution, but not just any evolution. We're talking about human evolution and where we, as a species, are headed as longer lifespans, changing diets, global travel, and wider use of medicine and contraceptives all begin to affect our evolutionary path. I'm joined today by Scott Solomon, who is an evolutionary biologist and science writer and author of Future Humans, Inside the Science of Our Continuing Evolution. Scott, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, As we talk about modernization, what are the effects of modernization on human beings as a species? as a species? How's it changing us? Well, there's a lot of ways in which modernization is affecting humans. And um, you know, I was especially, in, especially interested in the ways in which modernization is affecting our, our ongoing evolution. And some of the ways in which that's occurring is um, through, as you mentioned, our, um, our transportation network, our uh, modern ability to combat diseases with uh, medicine and technology, um, and also some of the ways in which we, for example, we, uh, we meet one another, the ways in which we uh, encounter and meet our sexual partners, which is changing through time. And in what ways are things like transportation, um, for example, what, what sorts of effects are those having? I mean, you hear uh, one thing that the sort of global connected uh, community that we have now is that these pathogens are spreading. Um, but what else? Is, is, what other effects are these these changes in transportation having? Right. So, um, so one of the things that's happening is that because it's so easy for people to move around the world today, um, and we can, you know, if you think about it, we can wake up on one side of the planet and we can um, go to sleep the, the, that same night on the other side of the planet. Mm-hmm. Right. We can move around the, the world so quickly and easily. And, um, and that doesn't just involve travel in which people are traveling somewhere and then coming back home. It also means that people are, are moving and moving with their families and, um, and in some cases, um, you know, migrating, right? And this is something that's happening more today than ever before in our history. And so um, what we're getting is um, mixing of populations that were once relatively more isolated. And that mixing of populations is happening more today than it's ever happened in our species history. And uh, people will be um, um, exchanging genes, and those genes that might be beneficial in one part of the world can spread to another part of the world. So we get a spread of uh, beneficial genes in a way that is uh, faster and more efficient than has ever happened before. And when you talk about these these genes, it, it sounds as though certain groups of people may have them and certain groups of people don't. Um, how, how did that happen? How did these these genes evolve? And and is there a specific one um, that may be something that we're all sort of aware of that we didn't really think about as being having come from a a, a specific group of people and now we all sort of have it? Well, so when, <clears throat> first of all, I should point out that um, the reason this matters, the reason that um, uh, that we're concerned about um, particular genes is because um, you know evolution happens when you have some sort of a, a trait, some sort of a, a condition that is um, is beneficial, and it's beneficial because 
it causes um, its bearer to have more babies, right? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily only about survival. So we tend to think about survival of the fittest being a way of describing evolutionary change. But really, um, survival only matters because you can't reproduce when you're dead, right? right? So it's really all about babies. And so any trait that causes uh, its bearer to have more babies is going to become more common in future generations if it is a trait that is, um, is genetically based. So, um, you know, if you have the ability to, say, wiggle your ears, mm -hmm. uh, which is a genetically <laughs> controlled trait, um, if for any reason the ability to wiggle your ears means that you have more babies than your neighbors who can't wiggle their ears, then in the future, um, the ability to wiggle ears is going to become more common. Now, normally we think about um, a, trait become, uh, a, a trait arising in a population because of a mutation, because of a change to the DNA sequence of an individual. And on average, most babies that are born have about 60 new mutations, mutations, some, uh, some sort of a change to the DNA sequence that its mother and father didn't have. And so um, it's always happening that each baby is going to have these essentially random mutations um, oftentimes those mutations will result in a change that is not a good change, mm -hmm. it, uh, but sometimes it could be a positive change. And so if it is a positive change, it's going to take time for that mutation to become more common. It's going to take multiple generations, perhaps many generations, for it actually to become a common trait. It starts in just one individual. But if we have those individuals moving around the world um, and spreading those genes, it's going to spread through the population more quickly than if those individuals just stay in one place. And so you asked for an example of, um, of a trait, of a real trait, not just wiggling ears, because as far as we know, wiggling your ears doesn't cause you to have more babies. And I can't um, do it, so I can't, <laughs> I can't speak to wiggling the ears. Right. Um, so one interesting example of a trait that has um, popped up in particular populations is uh, it has to do with the challenge that people face when they live in mountainous areas um, at high altitude. So if anybody has ever been to, um, to a mountainous area, mm -hmm. gone skiing or, or mountain climbing, um, they're aware that it becomes harder to breathe as you move higher up in altitude mm -hmm. because the amount of oxygen in the atmosphere declines with, with elevation. And so for people who live in mountainous regions, having low oxygen is a problem. And, um, and it can cause complications in pregnancy and childbirth, et cetera. And so people who have for thousands of years lived in mountainous regions, for example, in the Andes in South America or the Himalayas, um, they have evolved ways to compensate for having low oxygen in the atmosphere. And it turns out that they've done so in different ways. So Andean people have evolved a particular set of strategies um, that include having a, a larger lung capacity so that with each breath they can bring in more air. But hmm. in the Himalayas, they've evolved um, a different strategy, and the strategy there has to do with delivery of uh, blood to different parts of the body. So they have a, uh, a denser network of capillaries, those tiny little veins that are, uh, are delivering 
oxygen uh, to different tissues of the body, and they're able to expand their blood uh, vessels, their arteries and veins. Um, and uh, so by doing that, they can get more blood to those tissues and therefore get more oxygen. And it turns out that there's a gene that, um, that is uh, playing a role in that system in Himalayan people. The gene is called EPAS1, E-P-A-S-1. And, um, and it's been shown to have actually been under selection. So natural selection has been operating in humans living in the Himalayan area. Um, and, uh, and it makes sense that it would be doing that because that is going to be um, a major factor in terms of survival and ultimately making more babies. And it turns out that that particular, the version of that gene, the version of EPOS1 that affects the ability to deliver more oxygen to those tissues um, is actually a, um, a version of the gene or an allele that uh, the ancestors of modern Himalayan people acquired from and now extinct relative of humans known as Denisovans. Hmm. So Denisovans were this group of, um, of human-like um, organisms that lived in, uh, in Asia. We don't know their full distribution. They were relatives of Neanderthals. Hmm. And um, there's been now really good evidence that suggests that uh, modern humans living in the same areas as Denisovans and Neanderthals, um, that they mated with Denisovans and Neanderthals. And modern people share some of the genes from Neanderthals and Denisovans. And it turns out that one of the genes that, um, that some people have from Denisovans is the version of EPOS1 that influences the ability to live at high altitude. So this seems to be an example of how um, mixing of populations, or in this case is mixing of distinct species, can be really beneficial because you can acquire genes or versions of genes that are, um, that are helpful in a particular environment. Interesting. Um, so it, it sort of makes you wonder, you know, what's next? I mean, obviously, I guess this the mixing populations is sort of introducing all of these things and almost putting them all into one big pot, so to speak. Um, and so do we all sort of become one very homogenous species um, in the future? Is there a way to predict that? Yeah, you know, it's really, it is very uh, difficult, if not impossible, to really predict exactly what's going to happen in the future, mm -hmm. right? So, but what we can say is that we can, look at, uh, we can look at our history and we can look at recent trends and we can say that, well, if these trends continue in the future, what would that mean? And so I look at the trend for, um, for two things, for, um, for the mixing that we're talking about, right? If that trend continues, if we continue to have um, people moving around the world and mixing in ways that, um, that we see today, mm -hmm. if that trend continues, then yeah, I do see us moving into a situation where there's um, less and less regional difference among human populations and more homogenization. Um, but the other trend is, um, is our increase in population size, right? So if we look at the global population of humans today, we have something on the order of 7.5 billion people on Earth. And the trend, of course, has been uh, for it to, to grow exponentially mm -hmm. in, um, in the recent past. 
And if that trend continues, or even if it just levels off and we um, maintain a population of uh, any number of billions, that will continue to influence our evolution moving forward because, um, remember, each new baby that is born brings about 60 new mutations. Mm -hmm. And so what we see is um, more genetic variation uh, in our population today, in our, in our species today, than we've ever had before. And that, um, that's the raw material for natural selection, for evolution. Genetic variation has to exist for, um, for natural selection to be able to operate. And we have more of that variation today than we've ever had. And speaking of trends, you know, obviously a big trend um, is sort of this is climate change, the increase in, in global temperatures and the rise of CO2 in the atmosphere. What impact does something like climate change uh, have on our species? Does it act as one of these sort of agents of change or, or what might that, is there any way to know that? Yeah, that's a good question. So, um, yes, I think, it, I think it does and I think it will, but not necessarily in the ways that might be immediately obvious. So um, for, uh, for, for most people today, certainly in the, in the Western world and to a large extent even in less developed regions of the world, um, you know, we are, are not as um, exposed to the natural world as our other species, right? So if you think about people living in urban Western societies, we, you know, live in uh, oftentimes climate-controlled spaces. Um, we are uh, able to, to grow our food, and so we're not as, um, we're not, not, to, not to say that we are not dependent on other species or the, the fluctuations in, in climate. We certainly are, but less so, I would argue, than, than our other species. Mm-hmm. Um, so an increase, for example, in average temperatures isn't necessarily going to cause us to evolve to be able to cope with those increased temperatures directly, right? We use clothing and, you know, oftentimes air conditioning uh, to be able to modify our immediate environment. But I do believe there are other ways that climate change is likely to affect our evolution as we move forward. One of those is infectious disease. Mm -hmm. So infectious diseases have been among the most important agents of natural selection in our species history. Many of the genes that we look at in the human genome and um, where we see evidence that natural selection has operated in the recent past are genes that have to do with protecting ourselves from infectious diseases. And infectious diseases are something that we've been battling, but we certainly have not eliminated, and I would argue we never will really Mm -hmm. completely eliminate them. We're always going to be subject to infectious diseases, um, and there are always new diseases that are are emerging. And so that's that's something that is going to continue to operate um, as an agent of natural selection in the future. And uh, there are a lot of models that link infectious disease outbreaks to climate change. So if climate change is causing um, uh, an increase in uh, the spread of infectious diseases by moving, for example, mosquito species or other species that vector these diseases, um, or simply by putting us into closer contact with species that we weren't in contact with before, Mm -hmm. um, that is likely to influence our evolution moving forward through infectious disease. And I mean, obviously, these diseases themselves are evolving. Um, 
you know, you're hearing about um, antibiotics and, and bacteria that are now resistant to them. That's nothing new. Can, can we as a species, our evolution scale is much slower than, than something like a virus or bacteria. Uh, can, can we keep up with, with the fact that they, they might evolve how many times, millions and millions of times um, in the time it takes us to, you know, a day right. goes by or something, you know. So can we yeah. keep up with that or will they eventually win? Uh, uh, in a word, no. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we, we can't keep up with it. The um, diseases, because they are caused by microorganisms that have short generation times, they are always going to evolve more, more quickly than we can. Um, but one of the things that we do have as a, um, as sort of a, a, a way of trying to keep up is we are increasingly learning about how the, um, the microorganisms that live in and on our body mm-hmm. um, that is referred to as collectively as the microbiome, right. um, which includes many species of microorganisms that either don't really have any impact on us as far as we know, or in many cases are, um, are things that are beneficial. One of the ways in which they can be beneficial is by helping us to combat um, infectious diseases caused by different microorganisms. So there's a a link between the microorganisms that live in and on our body and our own immune systems, Mm -hmm. or in some cases, they are directly in competition with one another. And so um, we can look to those microorganisms as as one of the, the various weapons in our arsenal against infectious diseases. And of course, because they're microorganisms, they can evolve at a pace that is closer to the pace at which the infectious diseases are evolving. And so that's one way in which we might be able to try to keep up. But that's another area in which there's cause for concern because a lot of what we're doing, this is another way that modernization is affecting um, human evolution, is we are um, basically waging war on all microbes. Mm -hmm. When we use antibiotics, for example, those antibiotics don't target particular types of microorganisms, they target, for example, all bacteria. Mm -hmm. And so uh, if we take an antibiotic, we are hopefully um, wiping out or uh, or at least reducing the population size of whatever it is that's causing an infection, say. But it's also going to do the same thing to other species that might be helpful to help us combat that that disease. And so um, if we look at what's happening around the world today, we are doing a pretty good job of, uh, of, of fighting against uh, some infectious diseases, but we are also tending to really impact um, some of these species that are, that are really, they're, they're our partners. They mm-hmm. are species that have been in association with humans for, um, for tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, if not more, and uh, they have evolved along with us to, um, in some cases, to, um, to be beneficial. And uh, if we lose them, that is losing one of, again, the, the weapons that we have in our arsenal um, against infectious disease. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, this, this sort of change in perception. I mean, you see these kind of relationships on larger scales in the natural world. You know, there's the, the, the fish that clean sharks' mouths, and they have this sort of symbiotic relationship. Um, and so to find out that all along we've had <laughs> we've had these symbiotic relationships ourselves and maybe we haven't been the best partner to some of these uh, organisms is interesting. Um, and I think 
you know, it's hard to talk about the microbiome without talking about the human diet and, and the way we eat. And in your book, you talk about uh, lactose intolerance uh, and the genetics behind that. And you also talk about the, the rise of agricultural, uh, agriculture in different regions earlier in, in human history. How much did diet impact how different groups of humans evolved? Yeah, that's a good question. It's something that we're still in the process of, <clears throat> of understanding, but we know that it did play a role. So you mentioned um, uh, lactose intolerance, and really lactose intolerance is sort of the, the, uh, the, the, the normal condition, so to speak, in, in humans. Uh, the ability to digest milk as an adult is, um, is something that you don't see in other species. Mm-hmm. As mammals, we all have the ability to digest milk as infants, mm-hmm. but then that ability typically goes away. And, um, and so the ability to, dig- to continue to digest milk as an adult is something that has evolved within populations that um, adopted an agrarian lifestyle, the populations where people started raising cattle um, and you can imagine how beneficial it would be if you could continue to drink milk as an adult, especially if you live in a place where um, food is hard to come by or perhaps there's not uh, a reliable or a clean source of water, mm-hmm. right? You can get some nutrition and some, um, some hydration mm-hmm. by drinking milk. And not even so, human milk, but milk of a different species altogether. Exactly. That's exactly right. So you can uh, take advantage of the cow's ability to eat grass and convert that into <laughs> something that you can consume. Um, so it's easy to understand why that would be beneficial. And so what we see is different populations around the world if, uh, where they were uh, raising cattle evolved this ability to be able to continue to digest milk as an adult. So we know that that, um, that played a role in the evolution of those particular groups. We also know that uh, populations where uh, starchy foods became um, uh, a staple of the diet um, evolved um, the ability to produce more of the enzymes that break down starch. So we know that diet has in the past influenced our evolution. What we don't know is how the radical changes that are happening to our diet in the last 100 years or so mm-hmm. um, are likely to continue influencing our evolution. Hmm. But it certainly seems that this has been a major source of evolutionary change in the past, and it may be again um, as we move forward. Um, and so going back to this idea of these sort of, you know, people evolved in sort of pockets and now we're all mixing, um, you know, with, with today's society and the fact that we are mixing at an unprecedented rate, is it possible uh, today or sometime in the future for one population to actually be isolated for a long enough period that they might evolve separately and, and, and have these new different traits? Yeah, you know, it's, it's another thing where we, we can't say for sure because we don't know what's going to happen in the future. But it certainly seems like if we look at, 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 our, at our own history, um, it would take a really long period of time for any population to be isolated enough that they would evolve enough to really change into a new species. For example, we know that, um, that the, uh, the population of people that migrated from uh, Northeast Asia into the Americas and became the Native Americans, those people were isolated from the rest of the world, as far as we know, um, for 
at least 10,000 years. Mm -hmm. And yet they certainly didn't evolve into a new species. Mm -hmm. So it takes a really extended period of extreme isolation. And there are many of other examples of, of human populations being isolated for, um, for relatively long periods of time. Um, and uh, never before has that, uh, has that resulted in the evolution of a new species of human. So it would take some sort of an extraordinary event um, that, ex that lasted for a long enough period of time for a new human species to evolve. Really, the trend, as we were talking about, is for the opposite. As you said, it's for mm -hmm. more and more mixing. And so something dramatic would have to change um, uh, in order for, uh, for there to be enough isolation. All right. Well, there's obviously a lot to think about, and unfortunately, you and I probably won't be around to see uh, <laughs> see what happens. But um, it's it definitely gives you uh, some things to think about as you know as we watch society evolve at a very rapid pace. Um, Absolutely. So, uh, Scott, thank you very much for uh, for coming on today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. The book is Future Humans: Inside the Science of Our Continuing Evolution. Uh, and it's available now wherever books are sold. That does it for this episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please visit us online at www.yalebooks.com to keep up with this podcast as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. Talk to you next time.